Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Ocean Bunker podcast, um, this is season 5, episode 5. I'm joined tonight by my co-host uh, Austin, and uh, we're joined tonight by our guest All Source News. Hello. Oh, hello, sorry, <laughs> sorry about that, hi. Um, All Source, uh, to start off with, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and how you got into um, the OSINT business? Yeah, so, you know, so OSINT has been something that I've always enjoyed and loved, Um it's something that I really got into when I, I think what most people started to really discover OSINT with Twitter, obviously. And I think I got into that when I was in college, tracking Twitter and realizing the power of information flow through Twitter. Um, I served in the military, deployed overseas, and you know it was almost impossible to do your job unless you had a Twitter stream up and roll streaming live and trying to track everything, either Twitter or live map that pulls from Twitter. And that really got me into it. And um, when the UK Defense Journal, this specific channel, created a Discord, um, I remember I joined it and, and I just loved everybody's opinions, uh, the information flow and everything. And what I noticed was, is that there was a lack of coverage, at least in the English speaking side, right, of, of the OSINT community uh, of Mexico and cartels. And I felt that that's something that I could try myself to to cover. Um, I've had experience in Mexico, family there, uh, and, and you know I deployed also in the border. Have experience interacting with uh, Mexican military personnel, and so I felt like that was something I was very comfortable of trying to cover and expand. And luckily, in the Mexican Twitter, uh, there, there's a lot of really robust accounts, and in Mexican Telegram, and so that's kind of how I started. Uh, so I created my account March of 2021 and really decided to focus on Mexico to provide that gap. And then, you know, join Twitter spaces, podcasts that cover mostly Russia, Ukraine, but any geopolitics. Uh, I'm a regular in multiple types of Twitter spaces and love speaking and debating about military affairs, tactics, strategy, geopolitics. And, and, and now in this amazing podcast. So this is really exciting that I get to speak in the same podcast that I used to listen to regularly that got me into OSINT, so that's awesome. Yeah, and it's, it's really good to, to have you with us and, and, and really positive to hear that, you know, you, you, you've kind of taken something of, of, of what we've done and, and created your own sort of sphere of influence within it. And I know that particularly in, in sort of the OSINT group that we're all a part of, you're, you're very much the, the first port of call for anything to do with Mexico and, and, and South America in general. Um, so it's really really good to have you on with us, mate. Um, I think tonight we're going to start off while we're on the topic of South America, um, talking about the situation in Haiti. Um, and I will pass it over to the two of you who are very much uh, sort of in in the loop with what's happening on the ground there. So yeah, within Central America and the Caribbean, there's been a couple of countries where we've seen some very dramatic changes over the last year. Uh, some that come to mind are, are Honduras, El Salvador, and also Haiti. Uh, and specifically this week, some of the news out of Haiti has been quite stark. Um, there were cases of uh, civilian groups, you know, forming mobs and attacking members of local gangs. Uh, in one instance, 14 suspected gang members were executed in front of um, national police officers by a... Um, I would call them similar to almost like a civilian defense force, but many would call them a mob. 
Uh, and what's interesting to look at in regards to Haiti, as opposed to some of its neighbors, is that the Haitian government, as of right now, does not have a single elected official in it. It's not a dictatorship, and it's not as if, you know, it's not a traditional sort of autocracy. It's more of a product of the fact that every elected official, after the um, the ascension of the current leader, Henri, has resigned from their posts. Um, this has been conducted over time. It wasn't sort of one flash in the pan where everybody said they resigned, but it came, uh, it was a process that's taken about three years since the assassination of former President Moise in 2019, I believe, or four years almost at this point. Um, so what's interesting to look at Haiti in particular is the vast majority of the country and the vast majority of the capital of Port-au-Prince is run by gangs. Um, these are mostly local entities. They do engage in some transnational uh, criminal efforts, but for the most part, it's, it's local crime. It's robberies, it's trafficking, it's things like that. Uh, however, at this point, and when you look at two things, number one, Haiti doesn't have a military. They have a, a minute Coast Guard that works hand-in-hand -hand with some other regional Coast Guards, um, but they have no army. They have uh, no Air Force. And their national police force is far too small um, in comparison to some of these gangs. Uh, so I've seen a lot of comparisons to their situation right now where gangs have localized or regionalized control over many facets of daily life being compared to a country like El Salvador. But I would remind folks listening that El Salvador, before Bukele came to power, still did have a, a military to sort of leverage to um, supplement existing security forces within the country, and Haiti does not have that. So as a result, we're starting to see this turn towards these localized self-defense forces within the country where civilians are picking up arms and you know taking business into their own hands. Um, and the questions and the indicators that I'm looking at moving forward are going to be, is there widespread international support for the Haitian government? Because so far there really hasn't been. There's been a lot of conversations about an international assistance force going in, um, being led by the Canadians, but in a recent meeting between President Biden and President Trudeau, both seem to sort of signal that that wouldn't be happening in the near to mid-future. Um, so Haiti is an interesting case to continue keeping an eye on, but the situation there is definitely escalating and it's definitely getting worse. And, and I think the, the, the important aspect, I think, of Haiti is when we generally look at conflict zones around the world that cause masses of loud of instability, and state failure or state collapse, generally we see insurgent groups, terrorist organizations, et cetera, with kind of like a political motive, right? If, you, if, if When you're analyzing a, a country with significant levels of instability, there's generally a competing faction that, at least on paper, has some of political aspirations for the most part. Haiti is an interesting case where what we see is gangs and organized crime causing this level of instability of almost to the verge of state failure, right? I mean, most observers would start considering that Haiti is on the precipice of not already a state failure, including in its history throughout the decades, and especially post the Haiti earthquake. And so the, the, the problem of Haiti, and I think if you analyze and you kind of zoom out, is that Haiti could be a case point of what we're seeing in South America, Central America, and Latin America in general in the Western Hemisphere, of where gangs can cause state failure. Right. We're seeing violence at such astronomical levels. The most violent states with the highest level of homicides are actually in South America. And a lot of that is tied to gang or organized crime violence. And it breeds and that type of violence just breeds other types of violence because it causes, you know, the 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 breakdown of the rule of law, 
the breakdown of the rule of law causes then the judiciary to be ineffective. And then most people then can find it an easy way to just settle disputes that maybe have no criminal element, but instead of going to court in a civil court, let's say, they just say, well, let me just kill this person and the problem will be solved, right? And, and there's a phenomenal book called The Savage Order that lays this out of just how a lot of these types of crime, criminal activity can cause just a complete breakdown in the rule of law, independent of, of uh, gangs. Uh, but of Haiti, I think one of the important aspects that, that Austin touched upon that I think is important to also highlight is that what we see, and it's, and it's actually pretty common also in South America, is that a lot of times these gangs are more powerful, have more powerful weapons specifically than the, the, the national police, specifically in Haiti, right? So if you look at the gangs in Haiti, clearly they have better weapons uh, than the Haitian national police. And, and, and a lot of those weapons actually come from the United States, right? The, the, this has been well-documented, uh, excellent journalists have covered this, that how, you know, the kind of the U.S. lax gun laws permits a lot of these cartels and gang members to just overpower local police and local security forces. And Haiti is, is, is just that. I mean, you can look at the weapons that a lot of the Haitian gangs utilize, and a lot of those can be tracked to the United States. Um, the the CARICOM, the, the, the organization that kind of represents a lot of the Caribbean nations, actually just recently, I believe it was last week, released a statement basically highlighting the, the issue of the United States uh, guns getting flown into the Caribbean and, and causing significant insecurity in these countries. Haiti was a specific example that they cited. And, and so it's kind of this weird aspect that we're running into where, you know, Haiti and, and a lot of the South American countries might be either producers or trafficking zones for drugs, but then what they receive specifically are guns. And it causes a very hard issue for these governments and Haiti specifically to bring the situation under control when, simply put, their national police is very small. Their national police is very corrupt. There is well-documented evidence of links between the Haitian national police and a lot of these gangs. And then, oh, by the way, these gangs, even if they cannot corrupt, they can just simply overpower with plethora of weapons from the United States trafficked there illegally. That's absolutely correct. And you can take it one step further when we talk about corruption links between Haitian gangs and Haitian institutions. And when we talk about um, the idea of state failure, what often happens or institutional failure, what often happens is, you know, membership within state institutions tend to form either their own uh, criminal or corrupt organizations in order to sort of stake out their own their own way. And in the case of Haitian gangs, those links are very clearly seen and felt. Um, great example is one of the major gangs operating out of Port-au-Prince is known as Phantom 509. And their leadership is almost entirely made of former Haitian national police officers. Uh, and we've seen this in, in other countries across Latin America when there is localized or regionalized, um, and by region I mean like state or province level, uh, institutional failure. What happens is a lot of the former sort of uh, members of these institutions start to form their own organizations because they're already trained in how to do something like that. They have links to other governmental entities and resources, and they typically have leadership experience as well. And what we're seeing with a lot of these Haitian gangs is there are former members of the national police operating with them, or they still have contacts within the national police, which makes corruption links that much easier to establish, and you know, so on and so forth. And a, another point that All Source brought up that I'll, I'll comment on here is the supply of weapons into the country. Um, this is, I think, a larger issue, specifically when it comes to a country like Mexico. Uh, there was a book published recently um, uh, by an author of the name of Ion Grillo, 
uh, called Blood Gun Money, which talks all about how, you know, the flow of weapons into Mexico from the United States, because I believe the United States is the number one, um, not just supplier, but uh, producer of small arms in particular. And, but the book lays out, you know, the supply lines and the logistics necessary for organizations like cartels to continue their campaigns. And when it comes uh, to them securing weapons from the United States, at some points, it's all too easy to do. The, the, the important aspect, I think, that when, when looking, and I'll just bring this back to Haiti before we move on to the conversation to maybe Mexico and other topics, is that I am very concerned about these, these formations of these civil defense groups, right, in, in Haiti. Because the, the problem is you, you, you look at that and you think, okay, this makes sense, right? You have a breakdown of the rule of law. You have high levels of instability and insecurity. The Haitian government is incapable of providing stability. And so the civilians will then you know, take up arms and try to police themselves and, and provide you know, some level of stability for their community. But unfortunately, what people a lot of times forget is that a lot of times these own civil defense groups that form to combat gangs or, or cartels or organized crime actually start transitioning themselves and become the thing that they try to fight. They, they become these gangs. They become the cartels. And, and, and this, the, you know, from if you're looking at Haiti, these formations of these groups, you know, I, I go to, and I'll use Mexico as an example, is that we've seen historically where so-called uh, uh, self-defense groups or auto-defense groups that form in Mexico to combat cartels then actually become those own criminal organizations or even worse is that you will see gangs and cartels, you know, create front groups. And these front groups are supposedly these, these you know, community defense forces. But in the end of the day, they're just an extension and, and, a, and in a way a propaganda tool for these organized groups and cartels to gain more influence, just giving them the veneer of legitimacy because these are civil defense forces, right? And I think that's something that's very concerning in Haiti because if, if you have a breakdown, we can all agree that Haiti has lost the, the Haitian state has lost the monopoly of violence, right? That, that, that core tenant in international relations of what constitutes the state, the monopoly of violence, the Haitian government has lost that long ago, uh, to the point where gangs can dictate if the Haitian economy and the Haitian way of life can just continue. Uh, last year, there was a perfect example where Haitian gangs kind of shut down the port and prevented fuel from being transported across the country and, and causing the country to, to a basic standstill, right? And so... That breakdown of monopoly of violence just encourages a, 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 and, and solidifies the breakdown of rule of law. So the more self-defense groups, the more civil defense forces that come up that although might have good motives and try to become good guys, they just continue to undermine the monopoly of violence that the state would have. And then they run a very high risk of becoming those organizations they try to fight. And unfortunately, you know, we do have to highlight though when we're talking about Haiti is that the there is a group of Haitian opposition and civil society figures that have been very adamant that they do not want an international response, right? They do not want the deployment of you know, more peacekeepers or an international military response force into Haiti to cause, you know, to create stability. Because the problem is that they, they, they blame a lot of the instability on the Haitian president and the leadership itself. And they're right, right? I mean, the Haitian president is a main reason why we're seeing this high level of instability to the point where he is the only public figure, the only government official really left on the, in any capacity. But I think the, the problem is, though, that, OK, if you remove the Haitian president, let's say you create a democratic society, you bring back the Senate, you bring back the Congress. You're not going to create stability just because of that. 
Like it, the, 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 that is something that I think most people fail to realize when we're when we criticize the militarization of these, you know, cartel wars or gang wars or in Haiti. The problem is these gangs in Haiti and across South America are becoming militarized. They are transitioning to a military force. Although they might be very simple, very rudimentary, they're clearly powering themselves more and more and more to at least become, a, 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 at best, an insurgent group and at worst, an actual military force. They're not well-trained, but they're well-equipped. You, how do you challenge that? How do you confront that? How do you regain, how do you allow Haitian, the Haitian government to regain the monopoly of violence? And, and unfortunately, the only tool I can see actually available is the deployment of international security forces. I understand it's very controversial in the Haitian diaspora and, 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 and for very legitimate reasons. But I just don't see any other way that the Haitian government can put at least some control, not absolute control, but at least some control in the Haitian streets without international assistance. It's just that that's all they have left, and that's the only tool available. Exactly that. And I, I very much understand the point all sources is making here. I, I think one of the core issues remaining with Haiti is that uh, in many cases where interventionist arguments sort of come up, uh, or the deployment of peacekeepers, it's about sort of reassuring stability or bolstering stability. I think one of the major issues that the Haitian state is running into is that there's little to no stability currently. So it's it's an issue of trying to build a new sense of stability almost off of you know what's left of what the, the Haitian national police can offer and what the, the Haitian government can offer. And and on that, both, uh, both of those entities can offer very little right now. Um, so I equally understand the argument for sort of how a peacekeeping mission would help at least, you know, give the Haitian government some chance to start building um, stability and rebuilding institutions. Uh, but at the same time, I can also understand why we've seen some hesitancy from the United States and from the Canadians in particular on something like this, because obviously there's political points to be scored and the Canadian and American governments are very clear to sort of aim for that. Uh, but at the same time, what we've seen in the past two decades is that international peacekeeping missions tend to get quite messy quite quickly. Um, and so I think there's a general sense of sort of hesitancy coming from the governments that would be the most equipped to sort of lead a peacekeeping mission. Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that Afghanistan is still very much in the minds of the United States and others. And ultimately, they can see from, from the situation on the ground that Haiti would be no easier a, a, a peacekeeping mission. And I think particularly where the US and, and, and much of NATO at the moment is focused on the situation in Ukraine, the, the very idea of having to deal with another type of Afghanistan-style situation is not something they particularly want to do, particularly in light of events over the last week or so in Sudan, um, where admittedly we're, we're not dealing with the sort of scale of evacuation that we saw in Afghanistan, but we're still dealing with a, a fairly substantial sort of crisis that has led to evacuation of foreign nationals. Yeah, and, and on that point, and this is something that I constantly hit up on people when we're, when we're talking about just, you know, Latin America in general in the Western Hemisphere, from the U.S. perspective, right, is that from the U.S., it's, it's very almost criminally negligent how much focus is given to the Western Hemisphere. I mean, 
let alone Haiti, Mexico, whatever you want, whatever country you're going to focus, there is such a little emphasis, not only on the government side, but even on think tanks, right? I mean, you got to think about, you know, let's look at Mexico, right? It's, it's one of our largest trading partners. We share a huge land border with them. There's cultural, political, economic links between both countries and across South America. And yet there's hardly any focus either on think tanks or the government on this important region that is of vital interest to the United States, right? Our focus is on the Middle East, on Europe, uh, uh, Indo-Pacific. And then when crisis occur in, in, in Africa, you know, then it's kind of that, that squirrel moment and they all go to like right now, like in Sudan. And my argument always is I can understand why South America is not a priority. And it shouldn't be a priority with everything that's going on around the world. But it should at least have more emphasis. Because the problem is, is that the level of instability that we're seeing in South America is concerning. You know, Haiti is, I think, a perfect example of what could happen across South America if we let a situation deteriorate further, either because of the rise of authoritarian types of politics, the rise of populism, or just the rise of just gangs and cartels and organized crimes across the region. And the problem is, is that we can run into a situation where South America, by default, becomes the primary national security threat to the United States. And when that happens, it's too late. Yeah, I would very much agree. I think that the situation in Haiti right now is a, is a big warning sign for what does state collapse start to look like if issues are left um, unaddressed and unchecked. And uh, I think there are quite a few parallels if we want to get into it about, you know, the situation that we've been, that we have been observing in Mexico and sort of looking at Haiti as a, almost like a microcosm of that, because we've seen, you know, in Mexico, we've seen instances of localized control of cartels over local governments. Uh, but we haven't seen something, you know, spanning the entire country where everything is cartel controlled. Um, and so I would very much agree with what all sources are saying there. Uh, one, one, I do want to highlight, I think, something important. And, and this was laid out in a Washington Post article last year, is that um, U.S. military officials, I believe the last estimate was that 30 to 35 percent of the Mexican territory, right, in the entirety of the Mexican country is ungoverned. You know, the, the Mexican government has no presence since cartel control, right? And when we're utilizing that figure, again, it's 30 to 35% of absolute cartel control. That does not include areas where there is a Mexican government presence, but it's wholeheartedly subsidiary to the cartels or wholly corrupted by the cartels, right? And, and, and so if you, if you probably look at that from that aspect, I mean, that figure can easily rise above 50%, if not larger, right? There's large segments of Mexican states, Zacatecas, Guanajuato, Sinaloa, Sonora, that have in, on paper Mexican government presence, but simply, but th that's, that's it, right? And they are uh, either subservient to the cartels or an extension of the cartels. And that's generally why we see the Mexican government deploy the military is because they're not, they cannot rely a lot of times on the local state or even sometimes federal police forces to regain stability in the country. And, and oh, by the way, there is ample evidence of corruption at the highest level of the Mexican government to include the military because they're involved in the cartel activity and drug trade into the United States. Uh, the, the, you know, just recently, uh, the Eastern district of New York, uh, convicted, uh, he went to trial and got guilty pleas on what was basically the equivalent of almost like 
the, the a previous Mexican, you know, FBI director, national security advisor, you know, the one of the 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 senior drug czar for Mexican government under the under uh, uh, the Peña Nieto administration. Uh, so what two admin uh, one administration ago. Uh, that drug czar was convicted of drug trafficking because he was wholeheartedly embedded with the Sinaloa cartel. Uh, another case is the former Mexican uh, army chief of staff. So in Mexico, they don't have a defense department as we do in the, let's say in the United States or the UK, which civilian led and joint. In Mexico, they have a basically the army, the secretary of the army, and then the secretary of the navy, both separate and led by military personnel, by the, the most senior general admiral of the branch. Uh, uh, the Sinfuegos case, he was a previous army chief. Uh, he left, I believe, office in 2018, and he was detained under the Trump administration when he went to Los Angeles. He was detained because he was embedded with uh, cartel activity, specifically the BLO cartel, which has kind of been dormant lately uh, because of pressure from the Mexican government. Uh, eventually, he was released back into Mexican custody, uh, Mexican, the Mexican government. The Mexican government did absolutely nothing to hold them accountable for the drug trade. But those cases highlight also how the Mexican government cannot just be viewed as a fighter a lot of times or a combatant against cartels. In many ways, they're also linked to cartels and they will use the Mexican military to, to benefit one cartel versus another, depending on the region. And you can look at it from local, state or federal. And you see this very convoluted web of personnel connections, corruptions, and trying to see who gets a leg up. And again, that just highlights this concern that most people just don't put a focus on. And again, what we see in Haiti also ties into Mexico, where the cartels are becoming militarized, right? People like to blast the term, you know, the militarization of the drug war. And I personally hate the term the drug war because it's so much more than just drugs. I mean, we're talking about cartels that are actively involved in the trade of, let's say, avocado, lime, timber, oil, water, extortion on businesses in local areas and people blast the militarization of this drug war but people forget to realize just like in haiti these cartels are becoming militarized we have ample evidence of cartels being trained by foreigners uh former former foreign militaries we have ample evidence of you former veterans u.s veterans service members training these cartels the weaponry they use, the the way that they employ locally made up armored vehicles that Mexicans call monstros, that basically are like Mad Max vehicles, armed with M2 uh, machine, 50 cal machine guns, uh, drones, just similar as we saw in, in we see right now in Ukraine and Russia. We see those types of levels and activities in Mexico, and so it creates a very big problem that it's it's a very hard way to find a solution, but it. We just need to put more emphasis and focus on it because, again, my greatest concern is what if Mexico continues to deteriorate from a from a security standpoint? Right. You think we have a refugee problem and a migrant crisis now? Wait until we see levels of violence in Mexico that match or state decay and state failure that match Haiti. I mean, it's a completely different ballgame at that point. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. Um, it's an issue of acknowledging that these it's it, it's an issue of acknowledgement at looking at state decay in Mexico, whether it's on a local basis, whether it's on a provincial basis, and seeing what can be done to support what's in some cases what's left of institutions and to bolster ones that are still in existence. Because you know, as of right now, unlike Haiti, and despite you know corruption, 
the Mexican military is still very much intact. They're still operating quite well. Um, and as long as the United States in particular continues to sort of turn a bit of a blind eye beyond uh, operations that are already in effect, uh, these issues are going to get worse. Well, what I think this has solidified, um, Defense Geek, is that uh, we're going to need an entirely different episode focused entirely on on Latin America and what's going on there. I, I think so, indeed, and um, I, I think before we before we end up recording exactly that, um, we should probably move on to um, sort of the major topic of of the week and and of the month, which I guess would be Sudan. Um, by now, most of our listeners will have seen, obviously, the news and, and and the ongoing crisis in Sudan. I think it's fair to say that the the nation hasn't exactly been stable for a number of years. Um, obviously, not that long ago, the nation split in half, and, and we end up with Sudan and South Sudan. Um, there's, there's a whole complicated history behind why that happened, and, and we, we don't really have the time to go into that tonight, but... Um, I think it's fair to say that this particular sort of deterioration of the situation on the ground came very, very suddenly and with almost no warning whatsoever. Um, I think it was more or less a case of we woke up one morning to news that there was active fighting on the ground in Khartoum and, and other parts of, of the nation. Um, and sort of within the last week, we've seen many of, uh, of of sort of the the major foreign powers who who have embassies and so on in the country effectively decide no this is this is too serious we're, we're pulling out um, we've obviously seen the US Germany France the UK uh, Turkey and and various others flying um, in and out of uh, Khartoum and and the surrounding area trying to evacuate both their diplomatic staff and 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 the significant number of citizens, foreign nationals uh, who are living in Sudan um, I know the UK has an estimate of around 2,000 uh, UK nationals living in, in Sudan um, although I have heard people quote figures as high as 4,000 for that um, we obviously saw the US military undertake a, uh, a sort of military evacuation of sorts of their diplomatic staff uh, I think it was three Chinooks and a few other aircraft uh, helping to airlift a hundred or so embassy staff and their families out of Khartoum um, earlier in the week. Well, what do you guys think of the situation on the ground there at the moment? Because it's it's clearly very volatile, and as much as there has been agreement briefly for a ceasefire between the government forces and 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 the the RSF groups. Um, it's clear that those ceasefires are not holding as as well as one might hope. So, I think I think if if I if I can use history as a guide, um, I think what we're going to see in Sudan, if it's not already there, but this is a civil war. I think it's fair to say at this point we're at a civil war very close to there, right? Because of the level of violence, specifically in the capital, Khartoum. And the historical example I would use is Spain, the Spanish Civil War between 1936 and 1939. What most people forget is that the, the Spanish Civil War started because of a failed coup, but the failed coup wasn't crushed. And the, and the failure to crush the coup allowed those who wanted to you know, overtake and overthrow the Spanish Republic back then 
the nationalists, the Spanish nationalists, to, to fight on a grinding civil war that lasted three years. And I think this is kind of the historical example that we can utilize in reference for Sudan, right? I mean, so if you look at the key figures in Sudan, you have Hamedi in, in, with the leader of the rapid support security forces, the RSF, uh, and then Burhan, you know, kind of that, who launched his own coup against uh, the transitional government between the civilians and the military, you know, both of them had extensive tensions between them, right? It was well documented that both these leaders despised each other. They did not trust each other. And they kind of, the Sudan, you know, Buhan with the Sudanese armed forces and then Hamidi with, with the RSF kind of, you know, coexisted in this very tense environment. But to your point, Defensky, this did caught a lot of people by surprise, this level of violence so suddenly. And I think the key example of that kind of proves that is that what people forget is that the U.S. ambassador to Sudan, tweeted out when the violence started to happen in Khartoum, was that he was he was out of the country. Like he was out of the country. He arrived back to Sudan the night prior to the violence exploding into the capital. Right? If, if you would think that, you know, if we had anticipation of this occurring, you would have probably started seeing a lot of warnings from embassies, not only the U.S., but a lot of the embassies there. You would probably already seen planning to maybe we need to start doing this evacuation, you know, we need to get everything, or maybe there would have been people already evacuated earlier. There would have definitely been warnings across the embassies in the U.S., the U.K., the EU, etc., warning citizens about the potential violence. There was none of that. And I think that reinforces that this caught a lot of people by surprise. But then if outside of that surprise, if you kind of zoom out, you can see the history of tension that both of these generals had against each other. And clearly now they're going to fight until one person's on top, right? And... This is where it's going to be interesting. Where does Sudan kind of fit within the general instability of Africa, right? Because this is a very much internal, but it does affect a lot of other regions. You can look at the countries that border Sudan that also have, are going to be implicated in this. And, and, and one point that I would like to highlight before I push on to Austin, you know, what I was kind of surprised about when we're talking about the evacuations was kind of this lackluster performance of the People's Liberation Army, you know, China's military, right? You would think. That if one case where China wanted to demonstrate kind of this military matter, their ability to evacuate their citizens or to protect or to project military power, wouldn't it be in a case like Sudan? Because there's a substantial amount of Chinese citizens that work in Sudan, that are part of the Belt and Road Initiative, that have economic incentives in China. And I'm not saying that China was going to intervene military to maintain the peace in, in Sudan. That, that's, that, that's not true. But an evacuation of civilians, th th that well fits within the mold of the Chinese military. We saw that in Libya and in Yemen, where, where the Chinese military do that. And oh, by the way... When we, when we talk about the wolf warrior diplomacy, that term came from the movie Wolf Warrior that specifically talked about China evacuating citizens from a war-ravaged country. Right? And so when this situation kicked off, I think a lot of our observers were looking to see, OK, is this where the moment where China deploys military forces substantially to do an evacuation? Because they have a military presence in Djibouti and they've participated in the anti-piracy coalitions since the early 2010s, right? J just yesterday, I think, is the first time we saw ships of the PLA Navy deployed to the port of Sudan, right? Forcing Chinese citizens to basically drive all the way, and even their embassy to drive all the way to the port of Sudan to launch that evacuation, right? And I think that the, the reason why that's important is I think we put too much emphasis on the PLAs as a military-capable force. But I think the Sudan crisis should cause some pause and, and, and acknowledgement that the PLA is nowhere near the capabilities that a lot of Western military have in executing very complex uh, embassy evacuations and citizens' evacuations. Yeah, and it's fair to say well, yes. it's not something they've got a great deal of experience with. Obviously, you know, as we mentioned, we, we, we've witnessed 
the US and, and many of the Western allies having to evacuate embassies in the likes of Afghanistan and Iraq and we've seen it in Ukraine and, and, and so on in the last just the last few years. Whereas it's fair to say China hasn't really had something as significant as this to deal with before. And I, I think your point about you know people overestimating the, the PLA's military capability is, is, is a very, very good point because it, it's something we've already seen with Russia. We, we had this genuine thought process that Russia was a, a very capable and a very competent military for, for so long. And the last year of fighting in Ukraine has very much showed that perhaps that wasn't the case. And a, a part of me does wonder that perhaps we are, again, looking at China and, and, and overestimating its capabilities. Until we actually witness them in action, we, we, we can't really say for certain. Um, and obviously that doesn't provide a great deal of comfort for, for folks like Taiwan, who are increasingly seeing Chinese military build up right on their doorstep. But it does sort of pose a question for the rest of us, well, you know, how much of a threat really is China? And, you know, if, if they can't even mount a, an evacuation operation by air in the way that the US and France and so on have, what, what, where is their focus and, and what really is their capability? Well, you would think that the Chinese would have actually have been quicker than some Western governments here, uh, considering that they've been involved in, in the Sudan crisis for nearing on a decade, I believe, with peacekeeping rotations and deployments. Um, of any sort of non-Sudanese institution that's not on the continent of Africa, I I would have wagered going into this that the Chinese should have at least had you know a far quicker reaction time than what we've seen. I, I want to say the PLA ships arrived in the port of Sudan yesterday, and this is a crisis that's been going on for a week and some change now. Um, so just the, the brief comparatives there, looking at mostly Western embassies being evacuated via air transport versus the Chinese sort of having this delayed response by sea is something to sort of look at. And it, 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 I think it shows that the PLA still kind of struggles with projection around the world. Um, you know, if we if this was a situation in, say, Myanmar, I would say that the Chinese would have reacted far faster and they would have had the logistics in place to do so. But what, from what we've seen um, thus far is they've probably had to scramble on their feet quite a bit to get these these pieces in order. Uh, so, yeah, not the not the best look for the Chinese military, uh, especially after sort of what has been, I'd say, a month of very heavy-handed diplomacy on them trying to sort of look like a, a peacemaker around the world, whether it's between Saudi and Iran, um, or sort of inserting themselves into other negotiations like Russia and Ukraine. Like the, um, the positioning of the Chinese diplomatically has been this year thus far sort of we're looking towards a multipolar world that's what our objective is and we want to sort of show the world that china can also sort of be the mediator between countries that have traditionally had issues um, but in regards to you know application of force or evacuating its own nationals uh, i think it's been a bit of a lackluster performance thus far that being said, on the Western side of things, I think there was a lot of institutional worry going into these evacuations. Um, if I had a nickel for every time I heard comparisons to the evacuation of Afghanistan on the one side or the um, Operation Gothic Serpent slash Black Hawk Down raid in Somalia, I'd be a very rich man. Uh, and so I think for, for U.S. and Western planners in particular, there was a really big worry about even with the RSF coming out and saying that there's this 72-hour ceasefire, get your folks out of there, 
um, you know, how much control does RSF leadership have over its sort of contingent units and militias? Um, would there be a case where, uh, you know, a Western um, diplomat would be caught in the crossfire? Could we have seen, you know, something similar to the Black Hawk Down raid where, you know, a Western aircraft goes down? In which case you're looking at an entirely different situation than a simple evacuation. You have to establish a security perimeter and you really have to lock down a, um, a decent portion of the city of Khartoum in order to ensure you don't have a repeat of some of the um, bombings and attacks on Kabul airport that happened during the evacuation from Afghanistan. So thus far from what we've seen is that the ceasefire has been very tenuous. Um, but at the same time, I would say it's a positive development that we've seen, you know, the vast majority of diplomatic staff um, and their families evacuated out of Khartoum. The next step is going to be, you know, as um, Defense Geek mentioned earlier, there's around 6,000 UK nationals still in Sudan. Um, there's 16,000 American nationals there, uh, a lot of which are Sudanese Americans. So they're either with family, most likely, or they've been working in the country for some time, but they still do have American citizenship. And so, you know, it's one thing to plan an operation with a couple of Chinooks, a couple of Blackhawks, or in the case of the Europeans, a couple of A400Ms to extract an embassy. It's uh, another operation entirely different to extract, you know, 16,000 nationals from a city that's engaged you know that's actively being fought over on the one end and for two a country that's very quickly escalating to civil war and i think it's fair to say it's been anything but plain sailing particularly for the western countries involved in the evacuation i know we've seen photos today of i believe it was one of the turkish air force transport aircraft which apparently was fired upon by someone um, again, no no real clue as, as to which side was opening fire, but um, at least one Turkish military aircraft was hit during its approach to landing um, and as a result suffered damage to the, the external fuselage and, and a fuel leak, which I understand has now been repaired. Um, obviously, that's that, that certainly adds to the concern, particularly for those nations who are trying to evacuate by air, um, and perhaps that's part of you know the decision making made by the Chinese to to go via the port of Sudan. I know that the the British government at the moment is is advising UK nationals to make their way towards the port of Sudan. Um, HMS Lancaster, one of the Type Twenty Three frigates, is already there, um, ready to begin evacuating people. And I've I've just been informed that um, the Royal Fleet Auxiliary Cardigan Bay um, has finished her overhaul in Bahrain uh, ahead of schedule um, and is now preparing to make way to the port of Zidane, um, albeit it will take approximately six to seven days for the ship to travel there. Um, but that, that particular ship will, will obviously provide a, a much larger capacity for evacuation um, than a, a single frigate. So uh, there is still hope obviously for UK nationals at the very least, even if the air, air evacuation uh, ends at this point. I think the um, <coughs> excuse me. I think that the main thing is the, the the these evacuations. It clearly shows that there's two components when we're talking about the evacuation. We're talking about the embassy side, which you know, as as mentioned, defense geek like that is very standard operating procedures for for Western militaries. You know, we we do this every time there's a major crisis and requires evacuation. But then the, the second component of that is obviously the evacuations of civilians. And where I think the difference is between Afghanistan and 
and, and Sudan is that it, it shows that where the evacuations hub will be is the port of Sudan, right? That this is going to be mostly a naval eva evacuation. Um, and, and so I think there's going to be start to have conversations uh, with both parties involved, the RSF and the Sudanese Armed Forces, to ensure that there is a clear route between Khartoum to the port of Sudan that enables and allows civilians to evacuate, right? With the assumption being that probably the vast majority of these four nationals live in the capital in, Car in Khartoum. And so to enable that evacuation, and then a lot of this will be done via naval, right? And so we'll probably start seeing a lot more, as you mentioned, you know, UK naval assets, US naval assets, NATO naval assets. We see the PLN, PLAN very active there as well now. And that's kind of a lot where we're going to see these evacuations. Uh, the, kind of the, the good news in that is clearly it looks like the areas between Khartoum and Port of Sudan, at least the east of Khartoum, is under the control of the Sudanese armed forces. To the west is kind of the stronghold of the RSF, specifically in Darfur, is where they're base of operation, their history has been based out of when they were part of the gender weed. So um, I think that will enable a lot of these evacuations. But of course, there's risk. But I don't believe we're going to see in any way, shape or form uh, uh, the chaos of the Afghan evacuation, because mainly put, that was an air evacuation. There was no sea route. And oh, by the way, the the, the Taliban, you know, rapidly seized control over the country in a very short period of time uh, that really caught a lot of observers off guard and forced a very... Uh, hasty response by the West to ensure that there was some stability. And I think the numbers that we were talking about in Afghanistan for an evacuation, we were talking about hundreds of thousands, right? Here, we're probably more in the tens of thousands, uh, the U.S. probably being one of the highest ones with 16,000 people. Um, so it, it, I think if, if there's stability along the routes to the port of Sudan, which could, it looks like it's more feasible uh, because of the control of the Sudanese armed forces in those areas, then an evacuation, although risky, uh, should be successful. Yeah, and as you say, the, the the whole comparison with Afghanistan is 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 quite poignant. Um, it's obviously a, a, an incident that's very fresh in our memories, particularly this week with the news that the Taliban have reportedly captured and uh, killed the person responsible for the bombing at Kabul airport that cost the lives of thirteen U.S. service personnel. Um, I, I remember that that incident quite poignantly as well, and and I think it was that that was probably the the, the the breaking point and, and the point at which everyone sort of looked at the situation in Afghanistan and thought, yeah, this is this has really gone badly wrong here. Um, I think um, we, we've obviously had to uh, we, we've obviously lost um, uh, Austin now. He's uh, he's had to pop off for a meeting, so we'll we'll, we'll look to bring us to a close. Um, but before we do. Um, it's worth just mentioning a few of the updates regarding Ukraine. Um, there was a fairly significant Russian missile strike overnight, um, which hit a number of populated areas in Ukraine. Um, one particular strike, I believe, struck a um, uh, a tower block, a civilian uh, sort of block of flats. Um, as of the time of recording, the death toll from that single. Uh, strike has already reached 24, uh, including a child that was pulled uh, from the rubble um, just a couple of hours ago. Um, and Russia, I believe this morning, issued a statement around the strikes saying that they had hit their intended targets. Um, needless to say, that doesn't look very good for them, but then not an awful lot of what's been going on in Ukraine has looked good for Russia. Um it's also worth mentioning that um, while, while we've been talking about Sudan, um, Russia's Wagner Group have been um, supplying 
all sorts of weaponry to Sudan. Um, and I think it's fair to say that even though Russia is is very heavily focused on the war in Ukraine, it has been assisting in, in, in destabilising other parts of the world still. Um, Sudan, it's been providing money and, and so on to Iran, who have obviously in the last 48 hours seized a, uh, a, a cargo ship in, in, in the uh, Gulf of Oman. Um, I believe it was Marshall Islands flagged ship, which they've accused of, of bre- breaking international law and have therefore seized it. Um, we, we've not seen them seize a ship like that for a little while, but it, it's clearly something that's still ongoing. Um, and I, I think it's fair to say that U- Ukraine seems to be preparing for another offensive of some sort, and, and uh, a lot of the Western nations supporting them are very vocal at the moment about we, we need to make sure Ukraine has everything it needs in order to retake the territory that Russia has tried to capture from it. Um, so we, we could very well see a, a, another phase, another major operation uh, on the ground in Ukraine in the coming weeks. Um, but obviously exactly when that happens, only time will tell. Yeah, and I, I think that's, that's the key point, right? Like, you know, this is on Ukraine's timeline, right? When they decide to launch the counterfeit. So there's a lot of unknowns that we just simply don't have information to, right? And so, you know, the the level of training, readiness, equipment of a lot of these brigades that are getting stood up, that, that are fairly advanced, no question about it. But is it to the level that the Ukrainians feel comfortable with launching a counteroffensive? Again, time will tell. The other important aspect of it is that we're, we're still very much in the rainy season for Ukraine. Um a lot of reports of a lot of mud along the front lines and kind of areas where we would kind of anticipate a counteroffensive. And, and, and that will play a huge role in pushing back the counteroffensive because this counteroffensive will mainly involve maneuver forces. Uh, we're talking about a substantial amount of tanks, uh, uh, infantry fighting vehicles, et cetera, right? This combined arms maneuver that has, you know, gained a lot of traction in Twitter because of the, just what we're seeing in Ukraine and Russia. So the Ukrainians will make a decision of when to launch the counteroffensive when they feel it's best and it's for for and they give them the highest level of uh, chance of success. Uh, but I think it's very important to highlight something when we're talking about this is that when you look at the you know from the end of 2022 and the beginning of 2023, the the key thing that we all were talking about was this talked about Russian counteroffensive, right? This massive counteroffensive. After, you know, this mass mobilization of September, October, hundreds of thousands of Russian service members of Contras getting put into the Russian military and the initiation of, of offensive operations. And, and the irony is actually these months since then have been one of the months where Russia has seized the least amount of territory in Ukraine. And, and, and also when you look at the areas of offensive operations that Russia launched with their winter offensive, it's very, very, very small. I mean, it's not large geographical areas. You could talk about Volodar, Avidikia, Bakhmut. I mean, these are not major counteroffensives. They did involve a lot of people, a lot of personnel service members from the Russian military Wagner, but it was not geographically sp- spread out that you would kind of as- assume with the arrival of hundreds of thousands of soldiers – into the front lines to launch a counteroffensive. And I think that talks about the deficiencies of the Russian military and their ability to mass and launch offensive operations. So the question then becomes, okay, well, what about Ukraine, right? This is also going to be something fairly new from Ukraine. We have not seen Ukraine launch a counteroffensive of this magnitude with this amount of not only for them launching the offensive, but more importantly, 
Russians on the defensive, right? I mean, you're talking, again, hundreds of thousands of troops along these front lines. And so the question that the Ukrainians, that we have for Ukraine is, because although you were successful on the defense, at least from seizing territory, no doubt the Ukrainians suffered enormous amount of casualties, on the, uh, specifically in Bakhmut, but the Russians suffered way more. I don't think that's in dispute. Mm. So clearly we know the Ukrainians can maintain defensive operations. The question is, on this type of offensive operation, with this magnitude in amount, will Ukraine be successful? And I think we just have to wait and time will tell. Yeah, and I think Ukraine is it's part of the reason they are waiting is because they want to give themselves the best chance. They are obviously receiving a significant amount of equipment now from the West, um, including the arrival over the next couple of months of, of a significant number of main battle tanks from the likes of Poland and the UK and the US and so on. Um, and, and, and those obviously will help massively with any sort of uh, counter-offensive they launch. Um, but I, I think it's fair to say that they are... I would hope learning from history and waiting until they are appropriately equipped before they launch into such an invasion or a counter invasion rather. Um, we only have to cast our minds back to the Second World War and look at Germany who I think it's fair to say Germany was nowhere near prepared for the war when it launched the war and that was something that came really to, to cause it a great deal of grief later on um, I've been reading recently about the, the the Kriegsmarine and the fact that their plan for numerous battleships and aircraft carriers had to be cut short because Hitler decided to launch the war early. And had he not, who who knows, you know, how much longer and and how much more deadly the war could have been. But um, I, I think Ukraine is very well aware that where it is fighting for its survival, it has to make the decision at the right time. It has to wait for the opportune moment because to do anything otherwise would simply be a waste of resources and manpower, and, and, and that's not something they can readily afford at the moment. Exactly, and I think that we, 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 we all hope and anticipate that the Ukrainians are, 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 are making very deliberate choices of when to launch this counteroffensive, right? And, and I would say that the Russians have wasted a lot of combat power right, in this winter offensive uh, and for minimal gains. And the it's kind of ironic when we're looking at the situation on the ground is that we're seeing Russia pulling very old Soviet equipment, the T-62s. And it, it finally, we saw even an example of a T-55 in, in Ukraine recently. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the dichotomy we're seeing, right, is that the Russians are pulling old Soviet tanks, but the Ukrainians are receiving modern Western tanks that have so far not been sent to the front lines. I mean, we have not seen the Leopard 2s being committed. We have not seen Abrams committed. We have not seen none of those, you know, Bradleys committed, right? So clearly Ukrainians are holding that back for this counteroffensive, which was kind of the concern when the Ukrainians immediately divert Leopard 2s, let's say, to Bakhmut, right? Which I don't think would have been a, a wise choice for, for combat power. Mm. And so that's the situation we're running into, right? The Russians are mass mobilized, deployed Hundreds of thousands of troops, poorly trained and poorly equipped. Not that much success. But then you look at the Ukrainians, that while they were maintaining the defense, they maintain a substantial amount of combat power in the rear. Train them and equip them as much as possible. And, and it's almost as if while the Russians got weaker and, and, and technologically backwards, the Ukrainians on their hands were getting stronger and technologically more advanced. And we would hope that with this mass conscription that the Ukrainians did shortly after the invasion, that this Western training is very valuable. And we see the, the, after, you know, the results 
during the, the counteroffensive. And it does look promising, right? I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic of this counteroffensive. We have to be cautious, but there is reason to be optimistic. But the key thing that we all have to look into is we know Russia failed on the offense for the most part. I think that's fairly safe to say. They're not where we all, as you said, defense earlier to the level that we would expect a Western military. The question then becomes, how does a Russian conscription-based military operate large-scale on the defense? And although defensive operations are not as complicated and complex as offensive, they are still require a lot of coordination, a lot of sustainment, and simply seen put, we haven't seen the Russians execute this properly. So again, I'm cautiously optimistic, but I think the key term there is cautiously. Yeah, and on that note, um, we're going to call it a day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening um, to the Ocean Bunker podcast. Um, all sources, thank, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Hey, uh, Defense Geek, I, I really appreciate it. I just would like to end on this note that, like I said earlier, I created my Twitter account because I saw the work of the UK Defense Journal, your Discord channel. And, and the first time I ever announced that I created a Twitter account that focused on mixing cartels was I actually sent a message to your, you know, to this Discord specifically, uh, highlighting it. To so the fact that I get to be a speaker on the Discord channel that motivated me to create one, and was the first place to announce it. I just think it's a true honor for me, and I really appreciate it. So thank you so much for having me. No worries. And um, with that, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening. Uh, we will be back probably uh, this time next month with another episode. Um, but from all of us here at the Ocean Bunker Podcast, thank you very much for listening. Good night.